So I was thinking about you yesterday while I was fixing my toilet. Those of you who saw on Facebook saw there was, uh, we had a leak in, in our ceiling and had to deal with a leaky toilet yesterday. And uh, you're like, oh, that's great. Why were you thinking of me, Paul? And it's this idea that yesterday I was going to be um, working on this a little bit more, what I was going to say to you today. But there's this guy named Brother Lawrence. And if you've ever heard of Brother Lawrence, he's lived a long time ago, but he started this way of, of teaching people about um, walking with God through every action of your day. So being spiritual or being religious or being close to God isn't just about, uh, you know, coming to church or reading your Bible or praying that. He said, you could wash the dishes and commune with God. You could... Uh, Sweep the floor and commune with God. You could do all those menial tasks that you don't want to do, like fixing the toilet, and commune with God. And he was just teaching that everything we do every day doesn't have to be removed from how we commune with God. And so yesterday, while I was in a, not an emergency, but almost an emergency, dealing with all of that, I just took it as, okay, God, you know, I've been walking through this all week, and, and so now I'm just thinking about the people that are going to hear this today. And this is what I came up with, the one thing that I wanted to share with you about, about what we're doing. And it's simply this, that if you can't grasp the whole story of Jesus, you're going to get lost in the details and miss the point. If you're not able to grasp the whole story of Jesus, you will get lost in the details and miss the point. So today, we are going to look once again at the whole story of Jesus. For those of you that might be new or relatively new visiting, uh, we've been walking through what's called the Gospel of Luke or the good news story of Luke. It's the story of Jesus told by a man named Luke. And for the past year and a bit, we've been actually going through chapter by chapter, looking at it, looking at detail after detail after detail. And today, we're wrapping it all up. We're finished. And I thought it would be good for us to actually go back and look at the whole story. Sometimes you need a microscope. Sometimes you need a telescope. Microscopes are great for helping you focus in on small parts, the things that you can't always see. And sometimes when we're reading our Bibles, we need to pull out the microscope, and we need to come to it, and we need to look at it and see all the little different pieces. And I think we are all very good at doing that. Because if I said... Quote for me your favorite Bible verse. A lot of you would be able to do that. And if I said, tell me what's the general outline of Luke? You're like, I don't know. I, I just read it. And so we're good at pulling in the microscope, but sometimes we need to zoom out and get the telescope out and look at the whole thing because it's the details that start to make more sense, become more clear when we're able to put them in context of the whole story. So today, we're going to get our microscopes out, okay? And we're going to look at the whole story of Luke. 
So I'm going to read, starting at Luke 1.1, 1, 1, and you're going to stay here till I finish reading Luke 24. Yeah, <clears throat> of course not. We're not going to do that. But I do want to walk you through uh, this general idea of the book of Luke, and you might find it helpful. So we're going to look at this overview of the book of Luke. And a lot of you will be familiar about the first two chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Luke are all about the birth story of Jesus. So if you've been coming to church at Christmas every year for the last 30 years or 10 years, whatever, you've heard the story probably over and over and over again. Luke 1 and 2 are the stories of the birth narrative of Jesus. We are introduced to Jesus in this first section of Luke. It's the introduction to the story of Jesus. But what's really cool and what Luke does so well is Luke doesn't just introduce us to Jesus like, foomp, here's this guy named Jesus. Luke ties it back to the story of Israel. Jesus is not isolated. He is the culmination of the story of Israel, of a people who are called the nation of Israel. Their relationship with God has been happening for a thousand years and more. And the story of Luke actually gets his readers to think back to this long story of God dealing with humanity through the nation of Israel. And then he says, this Jesus that I'm introducing to you is actually the culmination of that story. So you've got Zechariah. He's a priest in the temple. There's the tie-in with Israel. And he's giving this great song as he learns about what God is doing. And then you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. And those of you from a Catholic background will be familiar with the Magnificat, the song of Mary, the revolutionary song. This little teenage girl is singing a song that's like ready to take on the Roman army. And she's a spitfire. And she's got this beautiful song that you can read in these first two chapters. And there's this introduction to history, to God and his covenant with Israel. And a covenant isn't the same as a contract. A covenant is very relational. It has much more to do with the relationship than it does with the agreement. And God's been covenanting with Israel, and they've been waiting for God to complete the covenant. And Jesus, is, as Luke introduces us to Jesus, he's saying, here's the culmination of that. Here's the fulfillment of that covenant. Here's where it's all going. That's Luke 1 and 2. So that's the first section of the book. And then what Luke does is he, he brings us into the ministry of Jesus. So Luke 1 and 2, Jesus is a baby boy. And like most of the, the people who have given us the accounts of Jesus, we just kind of jump over the teenage years. And it's like nothing's changed. You know, when you think about teenage ministry and stuff in the church, how many of you want to help with the youth ministry in September? Bob. I've been talking with Bob about doing that, and Bob's agreed. Bob's actually going to come, and he's just going to, now the pressure's on, Bob. You can't say no now, because he's going he's gonna to sit. And I've said to him, all I want you to do is just show up and sit there, and some of our teens, can, you can tell them your stories and your stories of faith. And Bob's got a young heart, and, uh, and you'll be, uh, no offense to our other leaders, you'll be our best youth leader. We'll keep you out of the dodgeball games. 
But we don't have a lot in the teenage years of Jesus. But then we jump into the ministry of Jesus, chapters 3 to 9 in Luke. And these are all about his ministry years in Galilee. So Galilee is uh, a region in, in Palestine and Israel. It's uh, about two hours' drive north of Jerusalem, just to give you some geography on that. Maybe longer, I can't remember. It's, it's a good hike. And Jesus spends a, a lot of his ministry traveling around and doing ministry in this area of Galilee. Galilee's like the backwater. It means nothing to nobody, and yet Jesus is forming his ministry. And in, from chapters 3 to chapter 9, uh, you just see Jesus moving around, doing things like uh, being tempted. So you read the temptation story of Jesus. You read about the baptism of Jesus in these chapters. In fact, chapter 3, you read about the genealogy of Jesus. Remember we talked about this? Sometimes you're reading your Bible, and it's supposed to be so alive and full of life, and then you get to this, like, two pages of names. You know, the son of, the son of, the son of. And you're like, oh, okay, that's great. And you move on. And yet for ancient people, what that was doing was tying Jesus into the story of Israel. So there's a genealogy from Adam all the way to Jesus. And going all the way back to Adam is this hint from Luke. This isn't just Israel's story. God isn't just for that people or this people. God is for everyone. And you'll see this coming out in some of the themes. But as you go through chapters 3 to 9, you have Jesus doing these great things like miracles, healing people, breaking the Sabbath, giving his manifesto. Jesus, what are you about? What do you want us to do? What's the thing that you're going to accomplish? And you get to Luke chapter 6, and Jesus says, let me tell you about the manifesto of the kingdom. So if you want to read what Jesus is all about, you can go to Luke chapter 6 and read through that. The parallel to that is in Matthew, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Luke chapter 4, Jesus actually starts his ministry by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to touch on that in a few moments. So we're just going to leave that there. So Luke 1 and 2, you've got the birth narratives of Jesus, introduction to Jesus. Luke's 3 to 9, you've got Jesus traveling around Galilee, choosing his 12 disciples. 12 disciples, 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Jesus is hinting to this new Israel that's going to be formed through him. But a new Israel that's not inclusive or exclusive, a new Israel that is inclusive for everyone. Then you get to this curious verse, verse 51 in Luke chapter 9. And as you're looking in Luke chapter 9, all of his Galilee ministry, you come to verse 51, and then Luke tells us this, Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. He turned his face toward Jerusalem. And it was like, he just, there's a shift, and Jesus says, okay, time for a showdown. And from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to chapter 19, I think it's verse 27, 10 chapters, you get the sense that Jesus is like, he's going to Jerusalem, and sparks are going to fly. And you're like, wow, Paul, I've read that a lot of times. I've never seen that. You know, that's because you're reading it late at night. You're just starting to nod off. There's tension building in these chapters. And it's amazing, you know, three to nine, just a few chapters, is three years of Jesus' ministry. 
Luke 9 to 19, 10 chapters is just one journey from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem. But there's, there's a purpose in what Luke is doing. Where am I? Right, that's where I am. So, this is where you get introduced to Jesus. Um, Peter has his great declaration of faith about Jesus. Jesus says to his followers, his closest followers, who do people say that I am? And they speculate. You know, that's not unlike today. If you went out and you said to somebody, who do you think Jesus is? You'll hear all kinds of answers. You know, he's a figment of your imagination. He is a good moral teacher. You know, he's the guy that has something to do with the church. And you'll be surprised how many people you might meet that say, like, I have no idea. And then you'll meet some that say, well, I think he's the son of God. But Jesus is asking them, who do people say I am? And Peter speaks for the group, and he says, we think you're the Messiah, the son of God, the Messiah of Israel. You're the one we've been waiting for. And then right after that, Jesus predicts his own death. Good answer, Simon. I am the one you've been waiting for. And by the way, I'm about to die. When we get to Jerusalem, that's what's going to happen. But don't worry about it. And three times you see Jesus predicting his own death. Really fundamental. Jesus not only sends out 12 uh, in chapter 9, but he sends out um, 72 of them in chapter 10, and he's saying, you know, with the 72, you've got this idea again of this isn't just Israel's story, this is a story for everybody. With the 72, this idea of completeness and wholeness and going out, preparing the way for Jesus to come. And then there's all these teachings that Jesus has in these chapters, and particularly about, about the poor and how God favors the poor. And then probably one of the most famous passages in Scripture, Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories, and he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who loses a sheep, and he goes out after the one sheep. He leaves all the rest of the sheep in the pen, the 99, and he goes searching for the one lost sheep. And when he finds a sheep, what does the farmer do? Party. Not just celebrate. He throws a party for finding one sheep. And then the next story, the kingdom of God is like, not just a farmer, but it's like a woman who has lost the coin out of her marriage necklace, a valuable, valuable coin. And her dowry or her um, preparedness for being married is incomplete without that coin. If she can't find that coin, all is lost. So she searches frantically through the whole house until she finds a coin. And when she finds that coin, what does she do? She parties. She throws a party. She doesn't just celebrate. She throws a party. And then he says the kingdom of God is also like a son who left his family and shamed them, ultimately shamed them, ruthlessly shamed the family name and ruins his life and then turns back hoping he'd be forgiven. And he nears home and finds out that dad's already forgiven him and has been waiting for him and waiting, and waiting, and waiting. And the father continues to shame himself by hiking up his tunic, his dress, and running down the road, bearing his legs. You don't show your legs, and you don't run when you're an old man. And the father shames himself over and over and over again to welcome home this son. 
Three great stories, all helping us see how God views you, them, and those. And the tension's building as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. And right in chapter 19, before he gets to Jerusalem, there's the story of this wee little man named Zacchaeus. These stories are amazing how many people who have never grown up in church still know generally the idea of Zacchaeus. Or in Luke chapter 10, the story of the good Samaritan. Profound stories that aren't just there for our moral teaching. They're there to help us understand what God's up to and, and who God is. And then you get to halfway through chapter 19, Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and we read about the triumphal entry. And so while chapter 3 to chapter 9 is like almost three years of Jesus' ministry, chapter 9 to chapter 19 is maybe a month or two of Jesus' ministry. You get to chapter 19, sorry, 9 to 19, and then 19 to chapter 24 is one week. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and everyone is throwing a party. He's here. He's here. The king has arrived. Woohoo! And then one week later, let's kill him. And you just see the tumultuous uh, uh, upheaval of everything in one week. And so you read about. Jesus confronting the religious leaders. You'll read about them challenging his authority. Who do you think you are doing all of this? You read about the betrayal of Jesus by a guy named Judas. Not in the popular baby names of any book ever. You read about how Jesus is arrested and tried and executed. You read about his burial. You read about that, we talked about this the other week, about Saturday and emptiness. And then you read about Sunday morning and resurrection and the appearances and the ascension that we looked at last week. It's God. He says, keep listening. You just got to run with that, right? <laughs> Okay, so let's keep with the telescope. Look at some of the themes that are in the book of Luke that I want to remind you of that we have covered over the last uh, 16 months, something like that, 18 months. So let's look at some of the themes that are in Luke's gospel. Remember, we're zoomed out. We're using the telescope. We're kind of looking at. These are themes that are running throughout Luke's writing. And the first one is this idea of the great reversal. That if you are going to be part of this kingdom that Jesus has been talking about again and again and again, you need to expect to be turned upside down on your head from time to time. Because Jesus does this over and over again. He challenges not only the people of his day, but the people of all days. He challenges our misconceptions of who God is and how God works in this world. Because we are so um, confined to, to what we see in this world. And part of the beauty of following Jesus is to open yourself up to let Jesus correct your image of God. 
and I've spent my life following Jesus, and he still continues to correct the misconceptions I have about who God is and how God operates in this world. And I am so grateful for that. So this great reversal of things like uh, the poor being elevated, and the poor, as you read about the poor, quote-unquote, the poor, we're not just talking about people like financially or economically. In Luke and in much of the ancient world, when they talk about the poor, they're talking about people who are on the outside, the marginalized, the excluded, the other. You know, we've talked about this through our series. I hate to tell you this, but you are so good at othering people. So am I. Rather than looking at an individual in the eye and giving them a name, we just create a group of people and we talk about them, those people. We other people. And when we other people, we can justify our attitudes and our behavior toward them. And Jesus says, I'll have none of that. Because those people that you're othering in the kingdom of God, those are the least. And in the kingdom of God, the least will be what? First, the greatest, yeah. And just over and over, what Luke does is he reverses things and he flips them on their head. And in doing so, he's just carrying on with what Jesus already started, and that is disrupting, challenging, creating discomfort. And so if you're not comfortable following Jesus, it's not a sign that uh, somehow you're lacking and you're not developing spiritually. Your discomfort could be a very indication that God's doing great things in your life and you're wrestling with what God's doing. So don't feel bad because you're struggling with, I can't stand, I don't like this. God's saying, it's okay. I know. Neither did Peter. You remember these two fishermen, James and John, Peter and Simon, or Peter and Andrew, all brothers, fishermen, and they had to pay taxes to the Roman people, and they hated doing that? And then Jesus invites this tax collector who represents Rome, who tra- who's a traitor to his own people. He says, oh, yeah, I want you to be one of my 12. And now these four have to hang out with this guy. And they're like, I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this, Jesus. That's okay. It's okay. Stick with me. Hang in there. It'll get better. And it does. But it's hard in the moment. So the great reversal, God favors the poor. Jesus and women. I think of all the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Remember, our gospel is just another way of talking about good news, a good news story of Jesus. Luke, more than the other three, for whatever reason, elevates women. Not that they're not elevated in the other ones, but I think Luke does this far better than the other three. And as you read throughout Luke's story, all 24 chapters, you'll see Luke doing little things, like he'll tell a story that's about a man, and then he'll put right beside it a story about a woman. And he's saying, learn from both. And in a very patriarchal society and culture, this is just gold. And I, and I think it's genius how Luke does this. So in the first couple of chapters, you've got Zechariah the priest, really important guy, religious guy, and there's a quotation from him in a song he sings, and then right beside it, you've got Mary's song, don't you? And her song 
uh, is amazing. Go back through, you know, the last 23 and 20, 22 and look at some of the things we covered in these stories when you look at Mary's song. And then in the temple, his parents are presenting Jesus in the temple, and there's this old man named Simeon, and he's like a prophet, and he blesses Jesus. And then Luke, who does Luke put right beside Simeon? Anna, this prophetess who grew up in the, or who spent most of her life in the temple, and she blesses Jesus. Then you've got this story of a Roman officer who has a slave who's sick. I think it's Luke chapter 7, and Jesus heals the man's slave. And then right beside that, Luke puts, I'll get the name right sooner or later, Luke puts the widow's child, that son who is sick, and Jesus heals that son. And over and over again, you see him telling the story from a man's perspective and then a woman's perspective. Let's go back to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, most beautiful, one of the most arguably the most beautiful passages in Scripture. Lost coin, lost, or lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son, right? First story, think like a farmer. Who's the farmer? Probably the man. He finds the sheep. So if you want to understand what the kingdom of God is like, you need to think like a farmer. Second story, is about a woman and her dowry necklace. So if you want to understand what the kingdom of God is like, you need to think like a woman. How amazingly elevating would that be for those original readers of Luke and the original hearers of Jesus to hear him telling that story about the kingdom of God in a culture that was basically always fixated on the men. And here's this rabbi from Nowheresville up in the North Galilee coming down and saying, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, you need to think like a woman. And what's really crazy is that today, I think we still need that story. If you want to understand what God is like, you need to sometimes think like a woman. Powerful stuff. Jesus fulfills Israel's story. The story of Israel has been happening all through the Hebrew Bible, what we refer to as the Old Testament. Or you could refer to it as the First Testament, and the Second Testament is the New Testament. There's this long story of God's involvement with Israel. And then Luke, throughout Luke's gospel, is reminding them of this covenant. Even, even in Luke 22, when Jesus is having his last supper with the disciples, and he says, the cup that you're drinking now represents, what, the new covenant, referencing the old covenant. And he's saying the old covenant has, has reached its climax. It's fulfilled in me. And now I'm introducing you to the new covenant God's making with humanity. Carries on story of God. And then if you're really watching, you'll pick up this idea of journey. Did you catch how we went through chapters 1 and 2, 3 to 9, 9 to 19, 19 to 24? There's a, there's a geography happening. There's a journey happening in Luke. And I think Luke has craftily told a story of Jesus in a way that says, wouldn't you like to journey with Jesus too? Wouldn't you be interested in just following along because he's inviting you to journey with him?
from his birth into his beginning of his ministry and then just journeying with him all the way to Jerusalem and the challenges that lie ahead and then journeying with him through, the, through death, through the empty tomb, back to the Father in bodily form. These are just a few of the themes. You can find all kinds of other themes in there. And there might be some that you would say, hey, I really like this, I really like that. These are just a few that I wanted to draw out for you as you think about Luke's story. So let's take the telescope, set it aside, let's just grab the microscope and walk through a few key verses in Luke that are really meaningful and I kind of think help us understand the story. So we need to zoom out and then we need to zoom back in. And then we need to zoom out and zoom back in. So in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, he's gone through his temptation, he's in his hometown, he's in the synagogue, and everybody wants him to read. So he takes from the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah is probably one of the most prominent prophets in Israel. And Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. They didn't have Isaiah 61. They had Isaiah. They didn't have all the chapters and numbers, but he knew where to unroll the scroll, find that spot. And he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And everybody's looking at him. And they're wondering what he's going to say next. And after he reads from Isaiah, he looks up and he says, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. That's God continuing the story of Israel, finishing the story of Israel in the person of Jesus. Then we jump over to Luke chapter 9. Pull the microscope out again. Jesus has been talking to his disciples, and this is where he asks them, who do people say I am? And they say, we think you're the Messiah. And Jesus, great answer. And then right after that, this is what he says, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. Whenever you see the word Son of Man in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is always Jesus talking about himself. It's never the disciples talking about Jesus. They would call him the Son of God uh, or Lord, but when you see Son of Man, Jesus is using that title for himself. And it's not a title that, hey, guys, I'm just human. It's actually a reference back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel's saying, I saw one coming out of heaven like the Son of Man. And so whenever you read Son of Man in the Gospels, Jesus is actually making that reference on himself. So he says, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He'll be killed, but on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. And then he said to the crowd, if any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Does that not sound like great reversal, upside down, kingdom kind of stuff? Yes, come and follow me. The invitation is always there. Follow me. Never a coercion. But if you are going to follow me, make sure you understand the cost. You just need to die to yourself. That's all. And I think so often when we approach discipleship, we think that we need to do something to become more like Jesus. 
And this is a wonderful passage where I think Jesus is saying, stop trying to be like me. You can't. But you are going to have to keep letting go of the things that you're holding on to that are keeping you from having real communion with me. And I think what a beautiful image of what becoming a disciple of Jesus is. It's not trying harder. It's actually just letting go of the stuff you think is so important so that he can have more of you. And he will shape you rather than you trying to shape yourself. Luke 15. Got to come back to this. Last verse of the chapter. The son who returned home and is greeted by his dad. His dad who's, you know, the dad represents God who's willing to shame himself, humiliate himself so that his son could know forgiveness and love. And the other son gets mad. You know, the other son others his brother. And the father says, no, 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 no. Don't be upset. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. These are just some of the microscopic passages, and there'll be others for you. Chapter 24, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's with two of his disciples. They're walking to this town called Emmaus, and they are telling Jesus about how upset they were because they thought Jesus was going to be everything that they'd hoped he would be. And then he went and died on them. And they were so distraught. And they're so upset. And they don't recognize Jesus when they're walking with them. And I just think, like, again, there's an image for today. How many people who started that journey with Jesus and just said, it just hasn't turned out the way I thought it would. I thought Jesus would be something more. And then... Jesus says to these two guys, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. But wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then verse 27, Jesus says this, he took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's Jesus talking to these guys and saying, you know your Bibles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, then why can't you see what the Bible's leading you to? The Bible, all these things. When he talks about Moses and the prophets, that's just a a vernacular for saying the whole Bible. The whole Bible is meant to lead you to me. And I think, again, so profound for people who are following Jesus today in the church to be reminded that the Bible is not your authority for life. Yes, you heard me right. The Bible is not your authority for life. It is your penultimate authority because the Bible is meant to lead you to Jesus who will be your authority for life. So rather than saying, what does Scripture say in a topic, I think we need to ask the question, what does Jesus say about this? And let the Bible lead you to him. This way, this book won't become equivalent to God. And I fear that it's been happening in a lot of, a lot of uh, what we've been seeing in our world today, that people quote the Bible, and then they use phrases like, the Bible says, 
And whenever somebody says the Bible says, what they mean is, my interpretation of the Bible is this, and I think you should agree with me. The Bible's meant to lead you to Jesus and to be for him to be your authority in life so that you can worship Jesus rather than just a book. So Luke wants us to see the fulfillment of Israel's story in Jesus as Savior and Lord, not just for Israel, but for everyone. But at the end of the day, here's what's happening. The Gospel of Luke is part one. It's Jesus culminating the story of Israel. But Luke ends with Jesus saying, wait for the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to go out and you're going to tell people my story. And that's where Luke masterfully is just leading us into part two, the book of Acts. Now, we're not going to spend the next two years going through the book of Acts. But Luke wrote Luke and Acts. It's part one, part two. Luke is the, Jesus as the culmination of Israel's story. The book of Acts is the continuation of that story now for everyone in the church. And then the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul preaching, but nobody challenges him. The book of Acts is left open-ended. It's not concluded and wrapped up all neat and tidy. And it's left open-ended, and that's part three. Part three is you. You are part three. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes, then you'll go, and you'll be my witnesses. And the book of Acts is the early church But I think God masterfully through Luke leaves it wide open as a reminder that you and I are the third act and that God has invited us to share in the story. God has given you an invitation to help write the story. You have a say in how this story continues. And God's been doing that with humanity all along. Not that you're going to write any more Bible, but God partnered with humanity in the beginning in Genesis, and in the very end, God's going to partner with humanity again. And right now, he's saying, help me finish the story. Come and follow me. Be part of the story. And I hope that inspires you, that the story isn't finished. And for many of you, it's just beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this guy named Luke and the masterful way that he writes and tells the story of Jesus. Continue to encourage us and inspire us through his words. Lead us deeper and deeper into your life, further in and further up, into the life of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.